Will you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? We're going to begin with verse 11 and read through 15. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the back of your order of worship. And just to remind you of what's been happening in chapter 5, um, Paul's really been considering uh, this heavenly dwelling, this place that we are going. It's a resting place for all believers where we will further, he says, be clothed in glory the glory of the Lord. And even as these bodies waste away, he says, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And we've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that these things will come to pass so that we would be a people who have courage in this world. Courage is ambassadors in this world. It's not just a courage that all trial will pass and we will safely arrive there with Christ, but a courage for another thing as well. The Spirit was given to us as a guarantee, yes, of our salvation, but also as a helpmate, one who uh, uses us, weak vessels as we saw, jars of clay. He uses our weakness and proclaims the glorious gospel through us. And so uh, these are the things we're going to consider tonight as we pick up with 11. Uh, Paul is once again having to defend himself to defend his ministry uh, as he considered, uh, as we considered last week, sort of the court that we would find ourselves in before uh, Jesus Christ on his throne of judgment. He's having to defend himself in this earthly court. Uh, we're going to see that his life is an open book before the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. It instructs us, Lord, it transforms us, it changes us into the likeness of Christ. We pray, God, that Your Spirit would be at work in our midst. That there would be penetrating things, Lord, that cause us to, to be stirred to action, to be stirred to proclaim Christ, and to do so, Lord, without fear. Uh, to do so uh, for the glory of Jesus who laid down His life for our salvation. And so God, gently move us. And uh, Lord, I pray that You would use this weak vessel even now to proclaim the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ uh, this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read to you beginning with verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to, but so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is God's word for his people this evening. Amen. We're going to look at three points considering, uh, uh, concerning the ministry of Paul and how it should instruct us. I want us to consider the fear of the Lord, one, controlled 
by the love of Christ, and two, the purpose of the Christian life. First, the fear of the Lord. We find ourselves once again with Paul having to uh, defend himself. He speaks of the, the driving motive, what gets him going, what gets him up in the morning when it comes to ministry. And he's been away from Corinth, and why he's been away, others have been at work. Men have come into the midst of Corinth and have proclaimed themselves to be the leaders. They've brought basically their resumes and they're thumping their chest and they're saying, follow us, listen to us, don't trust Paul. I mean, here's a man who can't even keep his travel plans. What else can we not trust Paul in? Petty little things. Many of you have been through church conflicts. I was in one in North Carolina where people came to me and began to say, I was the youth pastor, we wish you were the senior pastor. And started moving this way in the congregation, not realizing how dangerous this is to the ministry of Jesus Christ to say to one man, I wish we had you over some other man when both men are faithfully preaching the gospel. And Paul here is making a defense and it's, it's dripping with some pain. Pain with the Corinth church who should know him and know his ministry among them that he would have hoped that these men who came and outwardly were, were proclaiming themselves to be uh, the true apostles of the church and undermine his ministry, that they would have recognized Paul's ministry among them. He would have hoped that they would have said in defense of his ministry that this does not sound like the Paul that we know. Hoping that his calling would have been evidenced to uh, evidence of his commission by Christ to them, that by the grace that they have received through the preaching of the gospel and by the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. But here, he's having to, to painfully, once again, in this letter, defend himself to the ones that he loves, the ones that he calls his, his own children. And no doubt Paul thinks, here I have to once again boast almost embarrassingly boast as these other men are boasting here Paul has to boast but his is fundamentally different than what's happening there in the midst of Corinth something he has in his arsenal different than his naysayers verse 11 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others the Paul uh, the false prophets that they are concerned about the court of men, what men think of me, uh, what I say of myself. But Paul has a very different audience in mind. If you look back at verse 10, he makes a, a penetrating revelation that concerns all Christians. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and give account for what has been done in the body. And he says, whether good or worthless. I mean, we could stop there, right, and just contemplate that. What a heavy thing to consider when we consider our lives day in and day out. And it is this appearance before the throne of Christ that drives Paul as an ambassador to him in the world. So he says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, known, what we are is known to God. And I hope that it's also known to your conscience. Here, the fear of the Lord is not judgment unto death, 
but a fear that the works done in this life would be found uh, would not be found useless to Christ. That he that 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 Paul's concerned that he won't find himself standing before this throne of Christ and have Christ say to him, "Oh, how you wasted your life and wasted the time I gave you on meaningless and frivolous things." He's determined that the course of his life is to be in the service of Christ, no matter the cost. You know what? This man's back and his body bear the scars of it. Later in chapter 11, he goes on to mention all the things that he has had to endure. He says he's talking like a madman. That's going to come up in a moment. He's faced imprisonment, more beatings, he says, than he can count. He's lost count of how many times he's been beaten, but he recalls a couple. Five times the Jews have beat me 39 times. That's one less than the 40, right? He's been beaten three times with rods. Stone once. Three shipwrecks. Robbers, rivers, sea, false brothers, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure. He has not been afraid to go into the midst of Roman or Greek temples and declare in the pantheon of other gods, there is but one God who saves. Christ Jesus. His every motive has been the glory of Christ and the driving force has been that His life be spent in regard to whom He must give account. I ask you tonight, does the fear of the Lord drive you this day in thought and deed? Do you ever give thought of the purpose that Christ has for your life? Fear of the Lord should produce shaking off our naturally selfish hearts and not be negligent to our calling. What is your boast in this world? Is it outward and meaningless or does it find its root in a heart that is completely abandoned uh, to the will of Christ for your life? When you rise, what are your thoughts for the day? What is the first thing that, that sort of drives you for what the day will look like? And when you lay down your head to sleep at night, can you honestly say, Christ, I gave you my all in everything that I set before my eyes and where my feet went and what my hands did and what my mouth spoke? What works if they be laid before Jesus Christ now would He call good and what would He say was worthless? Do you not want to hear more than anything in the world? Well done my good and faithful servant. Paul lives in the fear of the Lord in service and love, and so must we. We must all appear before that judgment seat. And the reason that Paul is captive to this mission is found in our second point. The love of Christ controls us. Paul's boast is oriented in his slavery. I know that's not a popular thing to think about. A, pop, a popular selling point of Christianity. Uh, you know, we want to hear it's just freedom, right? You've been, you've been set free. It's freedom, freedom, freedom. But 
At the same time, something constrains us. Something controls us. It's, it's being a slave to a new master. A kind master. And in this service, it's often very jarring to the world. In fact, it looks like madness. Like he expressed in chapter 11. That's what Paul is saying in verse 13 of our chapter tonight. So that one might say, let me read it. It says, um, for if we are beside ourselves, another way to say that is if, if we appear to be out of our minds. So one might say Christians are out of their minds. I, I think of the impact of martyrs, for instance, um, who burned at the stake and what the crowds must have thought when they had the option before them. Just recant. None of this has to happen. Yet they go to it praying for their enemies before crowds declaring what they're dying for. What in the world is wrong with these Christians? It was even at the cross of Jesus Christ, one of the centurions saw the way that he died. In Mark 15, it says, seeing the way he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Christ who was constrained in his suffering to serve the Father's will. Likewise, Paul sees the complete picture here in, uh, in this constraint in this, uh, to the, by the love of Christ. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I mean, do you hear the impact of what it means to believe? Not as the Messiah... He's not, he's not saying, uh, I've been crucified like I'm the Messiah. But he sees something in what happened upon the cross. So that he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I live in this flesh, the reason I'm still here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He is constrained to this reality and it dictates His, his every move. Every move is done for the sake of Christ who shed His blood to purchase Him. It's servitude of a new kind. No longer slaves to sin and the flesh, but now life eternal and the glory of Christ to make Him known in all the world. That it doesn't matter how many beatings. That that's why he could say earlier, right? It, it, you know, even if I shed, uh, even if I'm, uh, uh, to, sorry, I'm confusing. No, earlier, uh, he didn't say it earlier. He said, uh, to die is gain. How could, he, how could he say that? He knows something. And it's not, it's not a glory that's to be hidden away. Not some glory that's to be hidden away in some church with its closed doors or closed up in the home, right? It's a glory too good not to show the world the glory of Jesus Christ to the nations. Verses 12 through 13. The false teachers had their reputation as the forefront to their ministry. It's their glory, it's their outward glory. But Paul, defending his reputation, says he is controlled by the reputation of Christ which is founded in a new heart inwardly. Let me ask you, what concern do you have for Christ's reputation? Do your actions to the watching world seem like madness? I know my neighbors probably thought the kids were crazy uh, when they kept asking over and over again, do you know Jesus? 
Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, or in other words, acting out of our mind, it's so different than how the world acts. It's easy for us, brothers and sisters, when we're called to share the gospel, when we're called to, to go into the world, to make every excuse not to go. It's so easy for the, the smallest offense or tribulation of suffering to cause us to turn our course, to, to huddle down, to hide in our buildings or in our houses. And it's even the imagined sense, isn't it? That we don't even actually have to experience it. We can imagine that something we might say might offend that person. Where the potential for difficulty can cause us to turn the course for the sake of Christ. We we could just make something up in our mind. It's not even from practice often that keeps us from going and sharing the gospel. It's not even something that we learn like a child, right? That shares the gospel. They they may learn, okay, I got in trouble for that. I'm not going to do that. They certainly learn that when they ask someone to their face if they're pregnant and they're not pregnant or say something to a bald man, right? Um, Often, We don't even need to learn that lesson. We just somewhere along the way decided, you know what, sharing the gospel is probably offensive and I'm going to keep it to myself. But how has Christianity endured the persecution from tyrants if they didn't have some greater constraint holding them? I mean, to read Hebrews 11 At the end of the hall of faith, we see that some were tortured, refusing to accept release because of a better life that lay ahead. Madness, right? That there were those that suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, killed with the sword, became destitute, afflicted and mistreated. Christians must be out of their mind to endure such things. What constrains them in their course? Which Christ says, He tells us, Look, if you follow after me, it's going to be suffering. It's the love of Christ that controls us, that moves us where He wills. Does the love of Christ control you? Are you willing to appear foolish in this world, in your actions and your beliefs? What cost are you willing to go to in order to stand firm in your faith and make Christ known? The imagined offense of sharing the Gospel is often enough to silence our mouths. The fear of rejection to stay our mouth from speaking. The idea that we may fail to know the answer to someone's question or to be eloquent enough scares the life out of us. Listen, it does me too. I'm not just pointing the finger. It's a scary thing. I don't know why. It's good news. Why is it so scary? So that often, we would far rather live out this life in the comfort of knowing our souls have a safe harbor to arrive at when we die. But what of our neighbors and friends and families who perish without anyone speaking to them of Christ? Love. Oh, that the love of Christ would be known that He gathers into His loving arms every sinner who would believe His simple words should be 
the driving motive and concern of our hearts when we rise till we go to sleep, until we go to our dying breath. That John 6 tells us the, the, the constraint that Christ had on His own life as He came down for a specific purpose and mission. For I have come down, it says, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Nothing in those words indicates the eloquence or the persuasion or power of us to convert somebody. Christ working in you through you. And the Spirit who has been given as a guarantee guarantees uh, so much more His active power in you than you ever imagined, right? It's not just a home you're going to, but His working in you, the Spirit at work in you. So that when we share the Gospel, we lose nothing in the act of evangelism. Not even if they reject us except maybe a little earthly comfort. For those that God has willed unto salvation will not be lost. You can't lose. You can't lose. Not even in death. Not even in rejection. Your loss will be what is laid bare before the throne of God. And he says, those things were worthless. The things that you spent your time on were worthless and meaningless. You served for your own glory and not His. This is the mission He has us on. It is Paul's singular mission in the world. He is a servant to this mission. The love of Christ towards us should control our every thought and our every action and motivate us as we go out into the world. Why else are Christians still here? This is Paul's crescendo in our final point, the purpose of the Christian life. Verse 14-15. through 15. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, for those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. He is speaking of Christians here. This illustrates for us the, the love of Christ, that he, he died for all. This sacrificial love is the basis of our salvation. It's, it's Him who came and emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ emptied Himself to become a servant to God and was humiliated in all ways, even to be crucified, clothed in mock, uh, mock king clothes with a sign hanging over his head, look, the king of the Jews. This was the cost that he has paid for our salvation, more than our salvation, unto new life. For here we are, 
Here we walk and move and have our being in Him. And why have you been given this life? It isn't merely that we might live with Him in eternity. Otherwise, He would have snatched us up and taken us there right away. But that we might live and stand for Him now with all kinds of boldness. That we who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. What is the highest thing that you can achieve? I know what the world says. But remember, Christians are out of their mind. (laughs) Your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I bet we find it a lot easier to uh, glorify God uh, or to enjoy Him, but the part about glorifying Him we find quite difficult. And often as a matter of necessity, we see the highest achievements in this world because it's always before us, right? Your kids. I'm hungry, Dad. I'm hungry, Mom. <laughs> Is the provision that we have to put food on the table? That we must excel in the workplace? We're wrapped up in South Nashville in a a community that um, is inundated with uh, achievement. Just ask our children at the schools that they attend that the excellency that is required of them, the immense pressure that is put on them, both in the schools and the home. But Paul calls us to something even more excellent. Christ didn't die so that we could live our best life now. He didn't die so that you had a bit longer to enjoy the treasures of this world that you might amass. I mean, why doesn't He rapture us up right now? Get me out of here! I mean, the world's messed up. Why doesn't He snatch His people out of a messed up world? So that there might be work done that before His throne He would call good. The madness of the Christian life should be that every believer lives what Matt called last week reckless abandonment to the cause of Christ. What we have been promised can never be lost. Even if we were to die, and the reason you are still here is to live out the death and to die unto yourself and live unto your dying breath the proclamation Uh, of Jesus Christ, to make Him known in the world, that His glory might be made known in all places. You were raised up right out of the stupor of self-worship and death and sin to proclaim Him who bled to purchase your life so that we might say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. What does this mean? I'd say it means some self-examination, right? Examine your goals and your thoughts and your time. These are the constraints you are now under so that every time we seek to serve ourselves without thought to Christ's glory, we're, we're desiring or aching to be the old man in the way we used to live. What is it today that stops your mouth from serving Him? It's not death. I know it's not death. In America, the cost is so low for sharing the gospel. It's not even prison yet. 
Often it's not even rejection. More likely it's the mere thought or imagination that even the slightest uh, uh, word might be an offense to others. The cost is low. Have we forgot the immensity of the sacrifice Christ made for our salvation? We think of the death of Christ and forget the enormity of what was accomplished. I think we forget a bit of the power of it as well. What Christ has done in raising us from death to life. I pray that it may not be so any longer that our mouths are quiet. That we would have a boast like Paul that is upon our lips and it's not thumping ourselves and proclaiming ourselves, but proclaiming and boasting of Jesus Christ that whatever we may come uh, from it will be worth it when we stand before the throne. And there he says, and he welcomes us. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That is my prayer for you, for this church. Let's pray.